0: Good evening to you all on this beautiful almost almost summer night I had the occasion today to think about what topic I wanted to take up in the talk tonight and. I often make my choice based on what I'm actually hearing in conversations with you individually and with what I feel to be in the field in the larger sangha in, in your hearts and minds, and in the environment, so to speak. So tonight I decided I would talk on faith. You've all been here for a while and there's some withdrawal happening, eh? So the thrill is gone in some cases. (laughs) The expectation or the hope or whatever idea that you had clear or inchoate about what this was actually going to be now you see what it is <laughs> in the moment uh. expectations say eh? hopes, expectations, anticipations, <laughs> requirements These are what we often bring to the present in our desire, our demand that things be a certain way in the present. And yet, how often is it actually the way we think it should be or the way that we want it to be or the way that we hope it will be? Whatever the Buddha had us saying, whatever you think it might be, it will be other than that. (laughs) And he wasn't kidding. There are many different lists in Buddhism, and one of the lists is the list of what are called the five spiritual faculties. So this word faculty is an interesting one, And, and basically it's pointing to an innate or intrinsic aspect of human capacity. And the idea in the Buddhist system is that these innate or intrinsic human capacities are things that we can choose to develop and employ in a certain direction in the interest of our own benefit and the benefit of other beings. So these five spiritual faculties are faith also known as sadha, energy and effort known as virya mindfulness known as sati concentration which is samadhi and wisdom panya these five things five things are these five things are believed in the, syst- in the system to be a kind of springboard or a basis for the mind actually Uh, doing the work or moving through the process towards liberation. And they are also the qualities or aspects of a mind that's actually awakened, a mind that's illuminated. And they're in a specific order for a specific reason. And as you notice, when I read the list, faith is at the head of the list. Faith, sadha. It's at the beginning. And it's at the beginning because there's an understanding that if there isn't some, at least provisional, faith, there's not going to be the capacity to marshal the energy to actually make an effort, to actually apply the resources of the heart and mind. And then, of course, mindfulness won't arise. And if there's no mindfulness, then concentration is not going to be possible. And if concentration and mindfulness aren't there, then, of course, how could wisdom ever arise? Wisdom is dependent on the mind having developed the capacity to clearly see so that it can come to understanding of about how to work with things in the interest of the arising of liberation from what we might call discretionary human suffering. So faith is (coughs) necessary to make the effort to begin the process, to get the ball rolling, to walk the path, So I think faith is a very interesting topic because for us as Westerners, this is a particular word that is really often laden with a lot of implications. So let me just ask you, when you hear the word faith and you hear somebody at the head of the room and some... Religious setting with religious imagery stuck behind their head. Does this cause nervousness and resistance on your part? Yeah. And this is, this is true for many of us, perhaps especially some of us who may have been raised in particular, uh, re- specific religious traditions where the understanding of faith is um, quite um, limiting of investigation. Let's put it that way. So I'd like to talk about uh, several different models of faith and then clarify for you what the Buddha's uh, version is and how it fits into this whole thing that we're doing here. So this is my own model of faith, all right? So, version number one in terms of our internal resonances might be something like uh, Santa Claus faith, I'll call it. So this is a type of faith that's naive and it's kind of innocent childlike in a certain kind of way, maybe literally childlike. And there's a kind of naivete there and a kind of trusting uh, nature. And it's devoid of skepticism and devoid of analytical thinking largely. And often when somebody holds faith in this kind of way, it never really occurs to them that there might be a reason to examine the current understanding that they hold. Right? It's just like not even on the radar screen. So things are taken in very simply and um, in an open-hearted way. So this kind of belief is easily uh, shaped and maintained when we're young. But you can see that there's no wisdom in this particular kind of state because There's no uh, intellectual uh, engagement with it. So inherited understandings are just kind of accepted. And this kind of faith relies on not noticing too much and thus not questioning too much. So, you know, a classic example of this level of functioning Uh, came in a story a a friend of mine um, told me. And she said, you know, I really believed in Santa Claus. And I said, yeah, uh uh-huh. And she said, no, I really believed in Santa Claus. And I said, well, you know, I I believed in Santa Claus too. You know, my parents told me there was Santa Claus and... I you know, I can remember being a little kid at night laying in my bed and I was I got up in the morning and I told my mother that I heard the reindeer on the roof. <laughs> right? She said, Yeah, but I was really bad and I said, So okay, how bad? She said, Well, it wasn't until I was on the playground one day and it was fifth grade and one of the boys said, Oh yeah, I suppose you think Yeah, you're going to get that from Santa Claus, and everybody else laughed. That I realized that there wasn't any Santa Claus. Okay, fifth grade. I said, okay, yeah, you're right. You you did believe in Santa Claus for quite a while beyond the norm. But that's one version of faith, right? Santa Claus. Okay, another version of faith that we may be familiar with from our own experience is what you might want to call creedalism uh, or fundamentalism. And this is where faith is made identical with holding specific fixed beliefs and doing mandated kinds of actions or not doing certain prohibited actions. And these beliefs are often contained in a holy book and or they're recited in statements of faith that have a kind of unchanging text and a very specific meaning. So there's often a very strong reliance on authority in this way of holding faith or understanding faith. There's often a founding male figure who had a special relationship with God who communicated directly to him and gave him the download and then that became the basis for the religion so there was this one person who had the special relationship with the all powerful and then the understanding in that was given in this interchange came to be known as the inerrant and unchanging Word of God, say. And, you know, frequently there are specific sacred texts that are here, and there are claims that it hasn't changed from the beginning, it's always been this way, you know, our understanding has always been this way, it hasn't evolved, It's, it's literal. And there are very few, if any, people who are qualified to say what these texts mean. And so here, if there are truth claims that are at variance with these texts and this worldview, then those truth claims are rejected. So for instance, there's not an openness within the system to information coming from things like archaeology, or biology, or other forms of science, or you know, what we know in, in terms of modern psychology. So anything that suggests that the texts aren't literally true, like the world, actually isn't 6,000 years old. These are, you know, rejected as threatening. And so here there is, this is a very low investigation kind of way of understanding faith. In fact, investigation is seen seen, seen to be very threatening because it can lead to a departure from this, uh, Orthodoxy, which is believed to contain uh, a truth that which has been directly received and which needs to be protected and conformed to. And so, you know, these departures from orthodoxy are often called things like heresy, apostasy, blasphemy, you know, those kinds of words, the E words. And, you know, this kind of faith can have a really strong hold on people because the stakes of questioning this kind of worldview can be really high for people. Right? And you can have the experience of being, you know, uh, shunned or you know, uh, cut off from your family or in in the times. Pre- well, I I was going to say in times previous, but it's not just times previous. Because this is still alive in the world, uh, in certain places, you could be have really bad things happen to you personally. Right? The aggression of the community would would be turned against you as somebody who, you know, was a danger to the community because of your your doubt or your contrary view to what everybody else was holding. So. That would be the downside from the community. The other risk you would be running, if you question this, would be like eternal damnation. You know, that's kind of a biggie. You know, burning lakes of fire forever. Mm -hmm. So I I can remember, um, for myself, being raised within a, a particular religious tradition. I had a that uh, uses the Bible. I can remember when I got to be about twelve in a, a fit of religious interest I decided I was going to read the Bible from the beginning to the end. And I so I started at the very beginning. As I went along my eyes kind of got bigger and bigger and not in a good kind of way, <laughs> you know it was like, whoa, he told them to do what? <laughs> it's like <laughs> and they did it, <laughs> and it's like, the children too
1: <laughs>
0: you know like and the animals <laughs> how were how were they in it? you know it's like and you know, I had this real... ...big experience of of cognitive dissonance, because the the end of the teachings that I had started with were were along the line of God is love and... Okay. So, you know, I probably got about a hundred pages into it. And then I was like, I felt all of these things that I just talked about, okay, so, something's wrong <laughs> something's wrong here. <laughs> something is definitely something is definitely wrong here. weren't they just telling me, like in catechism class, that killing was wrong and da 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 and that God is love and he you know wants the best for us and but he's telling them to right so you see- you see the dilemma and I can remember really struggling and and having thoughts come up in my mind like, well, but you know all these people have said that this this is true, you know, all these very wise people, and you know this is the way it is, and you have to you should you know you should go with this, you should and i thought, and I can remember feeling the struggle who and the thought arose, and this was sometimes you know. Said in uh, the religious training that I received, it was sometimes it was said and sometimes it was implied. Like, who, who, who are you to think you're better than Saint Augustine? Right? But there was something uh, there, and I couldn't believe it. And that was really the beginning of my path. Of leaving that understanding. So within a couple of years of that time period, I considered myself to be an agnostic. But I didn't tell my Irish Catholic mother. <laughs> that took a while longer. But that's. So I'm saying this story, you know, not to make a caricature of all religions of the book, because there are many levels of understanding each of these traditions, right? There's the people who are the literal ones that I've just described. And there are people who have more sophisticated, more nuanced, more evolved ways of holding and understanding these teachings and trainings. So I'm not suggesting that everyone who is uh, a member of a faith community who uses uh, a text is of this mindset. But definitely the ones who are of this mindset have a lot of influence, had a lot of influence historically, and still have a lot of influence. And our understanding and our experience with these strains of how faith is held, influences our own reaction when we hear the word faith. And when we hear about the necessity of there being faith. Because I don't want to be like that. I don't want to have blinders on. I don't want to be some drone that believes anything somebody tries to shove in my mind and gives up my common sense, gives up my will, gives up my discernment and my own... uh, Wisdom born of experience. So there's a another way that. So those are there's the Santa Claus version. Then there's the fundamentalist resonance with the word faith. Then there's another way that um, we hold faith, and we may not even realize that we have this particular faith view. But it's the faith that we have in our existing view. The faith that we have in our existing view, whether we're conscious of it or not conscious of it, and how that affects the way in which we approach spiritual practice. So when we we don't realize that we have a We are operating out of a baseline faith in our existing view, even though we might not be able to say what our existing view is. We are prone to what you might call a functional uh, or a utilitarian approach to spiritual practice or to something that uh, is often called spiritual materialism. Where we're really looking to spiritual practices, like meditation or yoga, as something that's going to be uh, a life enhancer and is going to kind of buff things up around, in the case of yoga I suppose, literally, buff things up around the (laughs) edges, Um, but it's not going to really necessarily cause any major rocking of what we currently believe. So in this utilitarian view of faith, which we often hold, we maintain our existing preferences and worldviews and understandings and then we kind of supplement these with the more pleasing and easy to understand aspects of the Dharma teachings. So here the Dharma is kind of accessorizing what we've already got going and there's often a certain kind of consumerism in this, isn't there? Where specific methods are uh, contained in the Eightfold Path are adopted and practiced in isolation from the more challenging or the more demanding parts of the teachings. So you could say in a certain kind of way, the, the Buddha Dharma is parted out. You know that expression, parted out? It's like when you take take a car or something and chop it up into pieces and then sell it, sell it off. So here, you know, we're trying to get to the juicy bits, but we're really not interested in or too tolerant in things when the tone gets a little more in the direction of being willing to, to learn to be present to what's unpleasant or what's difficult or what we don't immediately grasp when we hear. So in some cases, with this way of utilitarian faith in Dharma practice, there's no relationship to what are normally preliminary practices of the path, which means practices of generosity and of uh, ethical conduct in particular. Right? We just kind of like want to go to the what we imagine the the juicy payoff bit would be, which is the meditation piece. Uh, to see what it it can do for us. So in this way of practicing, when we're on the meditation cushion and we're examining what we're experiencing, our personal worldview and our current understanding isn't really rolled into the process of investigation. So it remains behind or outside of whatever is happening on the cushion. So, you know, an example of this is... When suffering arises, the mind is not willing to investigate it directly. You know, just wants to kind of like get rid of it immediately and go past it and get to something pleasant that can be immediately soothing. And the practice is kind of steered in that direction. So the mind is kind of closed and it doesn't know that it has a view, let alone that the view in some fundamental way might be deluded. But the Buddha's teaching basically is that we suffer in a discretionary kind of way because of delusion that's present in the mind. So the major implication of that statement that delusion is present in the mind and is Uh, the root of our suffering means that there's a whole bunch of stuff that we just are not seeing at all and that we're actually operating from. So if we only operate from what we know without openness on the periphery to the possibility of reform of the full view, we're just cycling around in what we already think. So when Trungpa, who wrote a great book called Spiritual Materialism, when Trungpa talked about spiritual materialism, he's basically talking about the use of spiritual technologies to enhance the existing self-sense and to gain upgraded kinds of experiences the way of working that's not open to exploring fundamental assumptions. There's... I had the experience once where I uh, went on an ocean kayaking trip and... it's always time for Dharma. <laughs> 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 went, on the ocean, went on an ocean kayaking trip and the, the guide was, you know, watching how we paddled the boat, right? And like anything else, it's you really need to learn how to do it by feel. You know, you can kind of sort of watch and, and imitate. But at one point, he turned to somebody in the in the group and he said, You're a lily dipper. And I thought, Oh, I got to see what a lily dipper is. So I kind of like watched what watched what she was doing, and I I could tell just by watching what happened, what he was saying. So she was putting the paddle in the water, but there was something about it where it wasn't really engaged, right? I mean, she wasn't like really putting... somehow wasn't able to apply torque, right? (laughs) So, something was happening but happening with the arms, but like the boat was not going anywhere. Okay, and this utilitarian view was like that. So, we'll compare and contrast that, that way of how the Buddha went about his whole exploration. So, the Buddha's whole thing was about the truth. You know, if you know his biography, you know he went through a couple different types of very intensive meditative training. And he mastered them. He mastered concentration, then he mastered austerity practice, and then he he was like, the teachers of these schools were saying to him, Oh, you've surpassed me, you've exceeded me. Here, have the school. You be the head teacher. You know, I'll be your student. I have, you know, 5,000 disciples or what. Here, you teach it. And he was like, no, it didn't, it hasn't, it hasn't happened yet. I haven't gotten to the bottom of suffering. And so he seemed like he went into this mode of direct experiential investigation where he like started back at ground zero. He started back at ground zero, it's like, Okay, I'm going to sit down. What am I experiencing now? What can I know? What, what am I experiencing now? and turned his whole, developed, powerful mind around completely to examine the arising immediate experience, moment by moment, to see what it actually was. Assuming nothing. Assuming nothing. Understanding that there must be something that he really didn't understand because he had not found the way to uproot suffering. In the Jataka tales that talk about the Buddha's previous lives before he became the Buddha that um, we know, he practiced many different kinds of virtues. Sometimes he did bad things in the tales. Sometimes he did virtuous things. But it's said about the Buddha that the one thing that he never did is he, he never lied. So he had this... <laughs> complete commitment to the truth, wherever it went and whatever it was. So his orientation was to liberating truth, and he was willing to submit everything, all aspects, all dimensions of his experience to this exploration. So this was a very radical kind of empiricism, powered by a very altruistic motivation. So he was all in. He was completely in. And through this experiment and experience, he came to understand actually how suffering is created by watching it in his own mind, and how it could be unbound. So a way to understand what we're doing here in practicing the Buddha's path, practicing meditation, is we are replicating his experiment, but we're doing it within our own individual laboratories of body and mind, using his instructions for how to go about running our own individual experiments. So it's a guided experiment. Right? The framework is given in terms of uh, the outline of the basic principles of understanding and the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. And then when you come into the meditation hall, that framework and how to, how to implement it right now in the sitting is supported by the meditation instructions that we give you. Okay, take your mind, turn it this way, notice these kinds of things. When this thing happens, this is how you can work with it. But we're not trying to substitute our experience for yours. We're saying, pay attention to what your experience is. So you come into the groups and you talk to us and you tell us what your experience is, or what you've noticed of it, and you notice what the reaction tends to be, at least this is what I do, I'm sure the others do a version of this too, which is, often I'll ask you a lot of questions about it, right? I'll say, well, and how was that? And what did, you know, And was it, did that have like a center? And when you noticed that, was that like pleasant or unpleasant? And then when you noticed it was unpleasant, what did the mind do to that? Was, was the mind aversive to that? Right? And that, then when aversion arose in the mind, what did the mind do then? Oh, was it aversive to the aversion? Okay. And then what happened, right? So it's like, tell me what happened. Tell me what happened. Tell me your observation. Tell me what you notice, tell me what you are learning from what you're experiencing moment to moment. So this whole process here is your experiment. You're not being asked to put anyone's head above your own, right? Your truth experiment rests on its own bottom, which is what you can know in the immediate sense for yourself. So in a certain kind of way, this is a little bit about what, like, what I remember doing when I was in high school in science class, right? So the, the teacher would come in and would talk about a certain scientific principle. I don't know what it would be. You know, uh, elements can have three different states, you know, uh, solid, liquid, gas, and then you they would set you up with a Bunsen burner or something, and you would do something to something and then you would measure. You know what I mean? You probably had right labs. <laughs> okay. Or you know, if you met uh, if you take this compound substance and you treat it with heat, then you'll see this happen and that indicates that this element was there and that element was there, right? I mean, they kind of know the uh, the outcome of the experiment before they give it to you. <laughs> right? But you need to see it for yourself. You need to understand why, why it's true from your own direct seeing, from your own direct knowing. So if we're going to look at what faith means in this Buddhist system of teaching, it's really about a multi-dimensional commitment to the process of examining the truth claims of the buddha dharma. A multidimensional commitment to the process of examining the truth claims of the buddha dharma. So this word sadha, faith, is used to convey a number of different things. The first is confidence to proceed with the investigation. This would be your confidence to proceed with the investigation. And one of the stories in the commentary illustrating this particular principle it, it says well faith is like you know a a strong and able man who you know is standing on one side of a, a a raging river and he needs you know the group needs to get to the other side and this this man this man of confidence plunges ahead without hesitation, and encourages the rest to come forward, right? Confidence to proceed with investigation. So you can see there's an element of courage in it. There's the element in faith of investigation, which is also called Dhammavikaya, which is the whole process of examining the truth claims. This assumes you want to know the truth, right? So you want to know the truth. There's some tentative faith or trust needed that investigation, meaning empirical observation happening within the framework of the uh, Eightfold Path will clarify delusion you have to be willing to at least run the experiment, right? If you thought that, you know, the, the, the potential level of uh, uh, untruth within the, the basic premises of the system is so high that you can't marshal the evidence for the investigation, well then just find something else, <laughs> right? It would be better. But if you, re- if you really want to know, given what the truth claims are about the end stages of the path, and the ways we can move in the direction of our own happiness, well-being, and liberation, and can support that in others, you have to try it. And that calls for the third element, which is heart, meaning fullness of commitment to practice allied with the kind of effort which is not deterred by difficulty. That doesn't just kind of want to bag it when it seems hard, difficult, unpleasant. Because in a certain kind of way we're going upstream against our own conditioning in this process of investigating it, aren't, aren't we? You know Pat, talked last night about limbic love and how, you know, we have these these, uh, biological uh, structures in the brain and these instinctual impulses to be, you know, pleasure-seeking and survival-seeking and gratification-seeking and all the rest of that, all the time, all the time. (laughs) But in order to get to understanding and to get to higher levels of function, functioning. We actually have to be willing to not just go with the flow whenever those instincts are arising and telling us, Oh, why don't you just go do this? or Why don't you just head this direction? Or why don't you just do this, right? We have to be able to challenge it. And now in this, in saying this, you can see how really counter-cultural this is this kind of investigation, right? Because if if you look at where our culture really points us as well as our our biological heritage it's to more and more nicer and nicer more and more pleasant more and more gratification of the senses and that's really not possible to take that as the standard and to pursue that to the exclusion of seeking first understanding. It's not compatible. Which is not to say that pleasure and ease and gratification and happiness and sense pleasure and all the rest of that is a bad thing. That's not being said at all. That's what our puritanical minds sometimes do. Oh, they said we should suffer. Suffering is better than pleasant. Actually, no, he's saying we shouldn't suffer. He's saying you don't have to suffer. But in the very effort of trying to make sure you never do suffer, you really do suffer.
1: (laughs) So that's the twist.
0: Which brings us to the fourth piece, which is surrender. Surrender. Interesting word. I don't know about you, but... I grew up in a military family. And we didn't do surrender. (laughs) Okay, that was like not a word in the family lexicon of like, you want to incline your mind to surrender. It's like, we never surrender, we never give up. You know, Churchill chewing on his cigar, right? So, you know, it took me a long time to figure out what was actually being said there. And this talk about surrender, this talk about letting go. Oh, does that mean you just kinda of like turn into a blob and you know you let life roll over you and you know whatever whatever you get kind of get to be like a stoner, you know, whatever, mom, <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, it's all good, you know. <laughs> Again, so, so this this is a very good illustri- uh, illustration of our unconscious personal overlay on what we hear, right? Because that's what my mind read into it in the first hearing of the teachings. It's like, oh... Oh God, wimpadoodles. <laughs> Fortunately, they made me sit, you know, like two hour sits, so I got over that idea they were wimpadoodles. But so, surrender means every dimension of the being is engaged fully the body, the mind, the emotions, the view. And all are part of the field of practice. Everything's in. Everything's in the field of practice. So there's an integrity of commitment to a process of moving towards an unrealized, not fully understood outcome. You don't know where it's going. And you don't know in the specifics, how it's going to get there. There's a willingness to have deep dimensions of being reshaped, realigned towards truth. Everything is up for revision, including the entire view of what and how things are and how they operate, and what we are and how it really is. Everything is up for revision. Now that's a radical commitment to truth. To be willing to follow it where it goes. Right? And there you can see the radical empiricism that the Buddha is talking about. So at the first three-month retreat that I that I did here, when I came in for a number of reasons. I, I came in and I was okay, I'm here. Three months is a long time to screw around and kind of be half in and half out of this. So I think the only way that I can really do this is to be fully in it. So I thought, okay, I, I have to do something at the beginning of each sit, kind of kind of just to remind myself of my willingness to be reshaped in the interest of understanding and transformation. So I came up with this phrase. And I would say this at the beginning of every sitting period. And it was, May I let go of all holdings, patterns, and beliefs which keep me separate from how things really are. I'm willing to lay it down. And that reminded me, like, you know, when something came up in my mind, there was a difference between what I thought should be happening and what was actually happening. This is a good general practice principle. I always went with what was actually happening. When there was a difference uh, between what I wanted to have happening and what was actually happening, I went with what was actually happening. (laughs) When there was a difference between what I didn't want happening and what was actually happening, I actually went with what was happening. So there's a way that this opens by being present to what's actually happening. How could it be other than this? If the whole point of this method, this path, this understanding is to rid ourselves of the delusion rooted in craving which is the source of our discretionary human suffering. How can we do that without being willing to be present to what is actually true? And learning how to do that. And taking that as the baseline and then figuring out how to make things work from there, from that place of connection with moment-to-moment truth. How could it be otherwise? So for you personally, if you were going to look at what kind of faith is needed, so now I'll use the word faith now that I've filled out some context for what's actually being said and why we're not encouraging Santa, although if Santa's there and it's the truth, then Santa (laughs) is there, but what you need is enough faith to begin provisionally the investigation and exploration and practice of the path. That's all you need at the beginning is just willingness. What do you experience? What do you know? And this level of faith needs to be developed in conjunction with and balanced with the other five spiritual faculties. Especially with wisdom and with discernment. Because it's not being, you know, there's no call for the kind of like, Oh yes, I believe it all, I believe it all, it's all so true, I can see. You know, it's like, not like that. It's like, what do I know from immediate knowing? So if we're going to say, faith in what do you need? What do you need to have faith in at the beginning? In a certain way, we could look back at the refuges that we took the first night. So faith in the Buddha. Not the historical figure, necessarily, although for some people, uh, this particular being causes faith to arise. But we need to have some faith in the possibility of the awakened mind which understands and a commitment to seek its arising with sincerity. Right? So if if that seems like a complete impossibility, remember the sequence of the, the opening of the five spiritual faculties? There needs to be some kind of kernel or bit of faith in order for there to be a possibility for effort to be made, right? Faith in the Buddha, the awakened mind potential which is within all of us. Faith in the Dharma. Faith enough that, okay, entertain the possibility that the Buddha's description of reality in the Four Noble Truths might be an accurate representation of how things are. And this claim should be investigated with diligence. (coughs) Faith in Sangha, a tentative uh, acceptance that the teachers and community of practitioners are knowledgeable and trustworthy guides and companions on the path. Right? Which is not to, doesn't mean you have to think the teachers are infallible or know everything or are never wrong. That's more like the Sani version. Right? That's enough faith to start with as far as the practice path is. But then there's two other dimensions of it, which is enough faith and trust in yourself that the risk of exploration can be tolerated. Right? You know you can take care of yourself. Enough faith in yourself as somebody who's good enough, as somebody who has capabilities, has the, these spiritual faculties already present, which can be brought to bear on the experiment, on the task of investigation. So when I started back at the beginning, and I was talking about the five spiritual faculties, one of the things that I said was, we all have them. These are inborn in human beings at some level of development. And they can be brought forward and cultivated, become real uh, fuel for our process of awakening. And when the mind has uh, pursued awakening, and has some level of realization, they actually become forces or powers of mind. Their features are hallmarks of the awakened mind. So... This is my uh, offering to help clarify the topic of faith and how it's held within this system. And to help you tease apart some of the reactivity and some of the embedded, often unconscious, associations that you might have in relationship to this particular quality or aspect of mind. So, um... My hope is that this exploration has been uh, of benefit to you, and that it will be a source of uh, energy and commitment to you, and undertaking your own experiential adventure in the time that we have here together. May the merit of the practice that we've done here in speaking and hearing the Dharma be a cause and condition of our own awakening and be of benefit to all beings without exception.